Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing great because we are talking biodiversity in one of the most biodiverse states in North America, and that is, drumroll, Alabama. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Brian Keener, who is a botanist that is just immersed in Alabama's flora. He's a big proponent for it. He is working very hard with his colleagues to understand it better. And it is just fascinating to get to talk to someone like this and and just see behind the scenes of what it means to be a botanist in a state like Alabama. And of course, this is all part of the biodiversity of the Southeast in general. You can't tease apart just based on political boundaries. We have to think of this as a complete ecosystem, and Alabama plays a major role in why Southeastern North America is such a biodiversity hotspot. I don't want to take any more time, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Brian Keener. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Brian Keener, it is so great to have you on the podcast. But before we jump into our topic today, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Um, Thank you, Matt. Glad to be with you. My name is Brian Keener. I'm a professor at the University of West Alabama down in Livingston, Alabama. Just finished my 20th school year. Nice. Uh, Curate the um, University of West Alabama Herbarium, uh, direct the Alabama Plant Atlas, and uh, one of my newer hats is to uh, be the director of the uh, UWA Cahaba Biodiversity Center up in Centerville. Excellent. You've got a full plate, and that's exciting because you're in a great position in a great state to be doing that sort of stuff. But w- before we jump into how amazing the floristic diversity is where you're studying, wh- where did plants come from in your life? Were you always a plant nut? I mean, were you just a nature kid growing up? How did this sort of all happen for you? Well, I grew up very rural up in St. Clair County. And uh, a very rural area called Gallant, specifically Greasy Cove. <laughs> um, it's in the same valley with Camp Simatonga. But um, in any case, um, I was around a lot of people called it gardening, but it was really more like huge gardens, almost farms. Mm. And uh, so I was around, all, you know, plants all of my life, growing watermelons and other things. But um, I guess my gateway plant to uh, to botany um, was ginseng. Mm. Uh, my cousin owned a general store there in Gallant and uh, I'd hang out there and eat a honey bun before school uh, <laughs> when I was attending Gaz and state. I originally was going to be a pharmacist, but yeah. uh, anyway, this uh, older gentleman came in and he, he had a ginseng plant that he had grown and um, he was all fired up. It was September. It had pretty red berries on it. And he was like, yeah, you can make a lot of money digging ginseng and, uh, and basically what he gave me to go on was it grows on the north side of the mountain. Hmm. And, uh, well, I grew up at the base of Chandler Mountain on the north side. So I took one of his plants and I, I, it was so bad. I, whatever plant I came to, I would just hold it down. No, that's not it. No, that's not it. At the same time, dogwoods have the same kind of red fruits. No. But in any case, and suddenly I stumbled into a big pile of it, just a huge patch of ginseng. And, um, so that set me on fire and I started digging ginseng and, and wanted to uh, really, I noticed that I kept seeing the same sort of species wherever I went and found ginseng. I now know some of those were like doll's eyes and, and mm. crumia and other things, and, but I needed to know what those were. I just had a, just a tremendous zeal to learn. And uh, 
my mother actually purchased a, it was the Audubon Society wildflower book for the eastern region of North America. Hmm. And so that helped. And then I don't know who, but someone said, well, you could major in body. And I, I didn't even know that was an option. But <laughs> in any case, that's a, uh, um, I went on down to Auburn after I left Gadsden State and, and got an undergraduate degree in botany from Auburn University in 1996. Wow. And the rest, as they say, sort of just falls into place. Yeah. That's, that's right. I started shopping around graduate schools um, near the end of that time. And uh, I wound up at the University of Alabama and um, completed a master's. I, my study for my master's thesis was the vascular flora of Blount County. Nice. And then uh, I wound up staying in Alabama for my doctorate. I, I think some people advise against that, but I was comfortable. Alabama guy. I was proud to be at the university and just wanted to stick with it. So uh, for my dissertation, I studied uh, Sagittaria. And hmm. we did the uh, molecular systematics and taxonomic revision of uh, Sagittaria, which is uh, commonly known as duck potatoes or arrowhead plant and things like that. Oh, wow. So sort of a riparian emergent aquatic vegetation guy by, by training initially. That's right. I, I studied under Bob Haynes. He was, um, at the time, considered the top aquatic plant taxonomist in, in the nation, I guess, nice. or at least, at least in the top five. So it sounds like a lot of your training has both been on sort of the, the physical botanical way of, of keying things out, understanding differences between species, but also dabbling in the world of molecular systematics, you know, as that is increasingly being used to kind of tease apart plants and, and really every organism out there. Absolutely. And uh, un unfortunately, we really haven't had the infrastructure here to for me to really get into the molecular um, and to molecular studies. But um, the exploration of our state is still very much under explored. Right. And um, so I've spent a lot of time collecting and looking for just trying to explore the four corners of Alabama and everywhere in between, looking for that new population of something rare or something new. And, uh, and just bailing hay, as we say, uh, <laughs> making a lot of specimens and getting that material into the herbarium for future study. Right, right. And as uh, you we do have a lot of molecular projects lined up. Um, sometimes you find new species and it's just a slam dunk, you know, you don't <laughs> no, no molecular work needed, but there's many other projects that, you know, we just need a little molecular tool and we've got those saved up when the time is right. Nice. Well, that's what collaborations are for, right? Someone's got to have the time and money to do it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Excellent. And, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you, you, you hold a lot of roles in your current position and it's already, you know, that's a full plate. That's a lot to do. And then you add to the fact that Alabama, as you, you mentioned, is, is criminally underexplored in a lot of ways, but also, you know, whether we realize the full potential or not, extremely diverse. So for someone in your position that adds an extra layer of like, how do you get your head wrapped around a floor of what is it over 4,000 known species of, of vascular plants at least, or, or am I off base there? No, that's that's where we are. Um, I think we're, uh, I think a quarter. We were over forty one hundred, I believe. Wow. And um, sometimes uh, I haven't. Um, sometimes I lose count because I don't look at it every day. We are adding <laughs> to to the flora all the time. I think we're closer to forty three hundred, in fact. Wow. But um, about a quarter of those are non native. Okay. And, so it is hard to wrap your mind around it. You start to have to, for me, I organized them in my mind in families and recognize families, then genera, 
And then once you uh, can go out and recognize genera, you start to realize if something is significant or, you know, if you've discovered something significant or, or not. Mm. And um, that's where those formative years doing my master's thesis uh, came to play when I was doing the entire floor of Blount County. That helped me put a lot of things in perspective with uh, relation to the different groups and the complexes and things that uh, we encounter. Nice. I kind of like that insider baseball look at this because I think a lot of people picture a botanist out there with keys all the time going through. But a lot of it sounds like you, you kind of carry a gestalt with you and just kind of go out and look for things that don't quite fit the the known images right. you have in your head. Right. I, I think um, I relied heavily on gestalt out of the gate. You know, you learn plants, not, but, you know, for the technicalities that makes them what we know them to be. Um, and then as time progressed, I, I started learning why this was this and why that was that, hmm. down to the technical parts of the keys and things that help elucidate the differences. Right. But, um, you know, and we still use Gestalt. Um, sure. You know, you, you never stop using that. But um, it's um, it's just, you know, there's there's lots of ways to learn plants. Now we have uh, iNaturalist and other type apps helping people. But um, I'm glad that. I had the opportunity to learn before those things actually existed. <laughs> right. I feel like that it solidified more things in my mind about, you know, what things were and so forth. But, Certainly. And, you know, I think sometimes keys can be intimidating for people that are maybe more used to field guides or picture based sort of identification. And, you know, AI is doing a lot of it for us, as you mentioned. But, you know, I think sometimes that is people see it, get lost in it, get confused and go, ah, it's just minutia. Why does that matter? But sometimes the way a hair is appearing on the bottom of a leaf or the length of a sepal versus a petal, you know, those are important factors. It's not minutia. It is truly indication oftentimes of different developmental pathways, which could mean something new, novel, different. You know, those are exciting things. Yeah, exactly. And when I, when I took uh, systematic botany at Auburn, I had a a great lab instructor for that course. His name is Larry Dallyrapple. I think Larry was uh, um, a technician in the plant pathology department, very knowledgeable fellow. He was just, he was very adamant, no picture books, <laughs> no <laughs> wildflower books. You know, he wanted us to use those keys. And I, at the time I was like, well, what the heck? I mean, I, <laughs> picture books are helpful, but right. I mean, he was spot on. I mean, they, um, they are helpful in some ways, but when you're trying to learn, you know, the technicalities, you need those keys and you need to immerse yourself in them. Yeah. Yeah. Cause especially when you get into a state as diverse as Alabama, sometimes those differences can really mean the difference between understanding the actual biodiversity out there or lumping it all together and going, well, it's all kind of roughly the same. And it, you know, the, it's good to be forced because if you're not forced, it's so easy to fall back on old habits, I guess. That's right. <laughs> nice. <laughs> So let's back up a little bit. You know, Alabama, I've, I've seen it in articles, uh, especially relating to biodiversity, is kind of America's best kept secret. You know, it's an area that's understudied, undersurveyed, and there is a ton of diversity there, which is kind of counterintuitive. Like, wouldn't people be flocking there? But there's a reason Alabama hosts such a wide range of, of flora, let alone, you know, all the fauna that then depends on that flora. So talk to us a little bit about what makes Alabama unique and why so many different plant communities and species and stuff seem to all kind of fall into this geographic area. Yeah. It can be boiled down simply as one word, geology. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Alabama perhaps has the most diverse geology of any state in the country. And, um, with that, we have uh, all of these different rock types. 
and um, the rock types were uh, formed in various ways. Um, we have tremendous amount of sedimentary rocks. We have uh, igneous and metamorphic rocks. Hmm. And the weathering of all those rocks and the inundation of the incoming seas and uh, seas rising for millions of years and retreating for millions of years and the deposits they made. So it's, uh, and that's on the coastal plain, more recent geologic time. Um, and then you couple that with the rivers that flow through Alabama. Mm. And um, the rivers have been cutting through all that rock and uh, making more and more exposures. So um, a lot of things can be attributed to, to high biodiversity. We think of the tropics being, you know, it's this constant, um, you know, growing season. It's constantly moist <laughs> right. and warm. And Alabama does have a, you know, a winter, if you want to call it that. <laughs> but, but Mississippi's sitting there right next to us, and they have the same climates, pretty much. Mm -hmm. They have rivers, and they have all these things going on, but they don't have the geology. That's why Alabama's flora and other biodiverse type organisms is, is very high. It turns out that the flora is actually not as high as some of the animal rankings. It's, it is those aquatic animals, mm. the big five, the crayfish, mussels, snails, uh, fish and turtles that Alabama's number one in and how Alabama gets those really strong rankings and total biodiversity numbers. The floor is still very admirable, but no. you know, you just, uh, even though we have this wonderful geology, we just can't swamp out that we're much smaller than Texas and California and some of these other states that have so much more land. Certainly that's fair. But at the same time, most of those organisms you mentioned owe their lives to plants in some form or another. So we can't, <laughs> We can't uh, bypass it, even though the numbers aren't quite on par. <laughs> That's right. Nice. So, you know, trying to get your head wrapped around an entire state and, and really, you know, even just from the perspective of, of, of curating uh, an herbarium, that's that's a lot to take on. And so how you, you mentioned sort of breaking it into families and stuff, but, you know, are there areas that are stronger representation just because of population density or less? I mean, what are what are some of the patterns you're starting to see in terms of our understanding or, or even sometimes lack thereof of floristic diversity in Alabama? Well, you never know. I mean, we think we have a handle on something and then sometimes a discovery is made. It just blows it wide open. Um <laughs> And, you know, there's several examples of this, you know, we're cruising along fine. Everybody's comfortable with, you know, certain genus and, and then, you know, a new population starts to make people scratch their heads about it. So, um, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I try to compartmentalize these things in my mind as far as what I know about a genus and so forth. And there's constant discoveries. Mm. And uh, it's, as you said, it's really hard to wrap your mind around. Now we've had some great, um, new understanding and developments in the genus Hexastylus. And that's a case in point of yeah. we, how we felt like something was fairly stable and well known and <laughs> we had the diversity sort of wrapped up and uh, it turned out we didn't uh, because uh, discoveries were made and, and it led to uh, new, new species descriptions. Right. And, and in fact, in the last few years, it's at least two new species, but you know, it's, it's funny because I love this, this genus for this example, it just goes to show you why paying attention even to things you think are common are important. You know, hexastylus from above, often, you know, you see the leaves, there's a lot of variability. You can kind of recognize, at least I can, some species from others, but it takes looking under the leaf at a right time of year to see what's going on reproductively. And that's, to me, when you start to see the differences, you're like, 
oh wow no one must have taken the time to look under that leaf because that right. looks completely different <laughs> right and that's the lesson we learned um you don't pass by any population of hexastyles without taking a peek a little under there <laughs> nice. uh, so um yeah it was um it was really serendipitous um the the first of these new hexastylus species i have a a friend and colleague named Brian Fenzel, he teaches high school science over in uh, in Huntsville. And uh, he was out near Gunnersville Dam just looking for a trillion to photograph. <laughs> and so he happens to see um, what he thought was little brown jugs, hexastylus aerofolia. And uh, he just uh, was pausing a minute, taking a break, and he just happened to lift up the leaves. <laughs> And uh, when he did, he did not find what he, you would typically see with little brown jugs with the little almost closed flowers. Mm. Found something more wide open. And, uh, and so I remember getting that text that evening. He said, what do you think this is? Uh, you know, it was definitely new. I mean, this <laughs> like slam dunk. This yeah. is a new species. So, uh, you know, we started investigating that. And, and uh, it turns out that it's so far as we know, very limited to a, a single mountain up there in Marshall County. Wow. But um, there was a lot of discussion on Facebook with something like this because hexastylus is a well-known, well-beloved genus of people who like plants. Right. And so uh, a colleague, she's a great friend now. I didn't know her that well at the time, but Gina Todia, who does much environmental consulting work down in the coastal plain area, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia. She, uh, Florida, um, she said, well, hey, you know, I rescued this one in my, uh, in some of my work and uh, it's in my garden now. And she rescued it from a site that was going to be developed. And she said, it's blooming. Could you help me with the idea of this? Mm -hmm. She posted it to the group, right? Well, I mean, it was a classic. If you had a pencil in your mouth, it would just fell out right there. <laughs> it's like, holy smokes, what is going on with all these types <laughs> yeah. of uh, it, it was a new species, too. And um, the problem with that one, though, is she wasn't certain where it came from. Oh. And um, so we, we started uh, looking around. She thought it came from uh, over in uh, Coffee County near Enterprise. So we went over there and did some searches and stuff and we didn't turn up anything. So we thought, well, maybe it was just destroyed in the development. Mm. You don't want to do this, but we wound up naming it from cultivation. It's perfectly allowable with ethyl nomenclature use, but it's wow. not ideal. Right. So we did and we named it. And um, so uh, from there, we just thought, well, we, we hope it turns up someday. And there's been searches and things. Well, just last month, she's out doing work in Baldwin County. Lo and behold, she stumbles into the new species, Hexastylus <laughs> romanzii, that we published in 2021. Wow. And so, man, we have been so excited and looking for more and more populations and finding a few. Yeah. But it is a greatly imperiled species. And uh, it just so happens that we may or may not. I mean, if she weren't, if she had not rescued that, we don't know that we would have ever found it before. Perhaps it would have been destroyed. I mean, you would think with people with cell phone cameras. And, sure everybody's pocket it would have turned up but it just hadn't right it's just a wonderful story yeah that's exciting because it could have like you said all too easily been that population that got wiped out that the rescue was it and it's done and you know it's really fortuitous and, and always a great time to hear that okay we went out and found more of it now it doesn't mean that it's by any means common but 
it's a really important lesson to learn because oftentimes I think, you know, new species descriptions, we imagine some far flung corner that's impossible to get to. But oftentimes it's, hey, we grabbed this before <laughs> the developers came in and mowed it right. down. And, you know, Alabama is a really great example of that. Like it's often Lake Gunnersville. That's something a lot of people have heard of, especially if you're a bass fisherman. Like right. that's not a non-trafficked area. You just have to have the right people in the right place at the right time with a camera or looking for that particular thing. Because I can't tell you how many times I've passed by hexastias populations and just went, yeah, it's there and not much more right. <laughs> beyond that. And, and I'll reiterate uh, the leaves of the two new ones are identical Dang. <laughs> to the common arapuli, <laughs> to the common little brown jug. And it, it just takes looking at the flower. And it doesn't take a botanist to see sure. that they are very different flowers. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, you know, when the, the, the press release went out, I actually got to see that. And, and you see the photo, you're like, there's no mistaking that. But again, you have to be willing to look. And I think that's a really great case is like, Yes, botany is a hobby. There's a lot of people enjoying it, but it's it, it pales in comparison to say herpetology or birding. And, you know, they're out there all the time looking for these things. There's a lot less botanists doing the kind of scrutiny needed to understand just what where things are half the time, let alone if they're unique. Exactly. And to your point, um, I use iNaturalist and I'm sure you probably sure. played with the app as well. Um, if I upload a, a salamander or some kind of herptile. I mean, there's there's 20 herpetology type folks that are offering, you know, their identification as well. Right. If I upload a plant, then there might be one. Right. right. <laughs> so there's just not the plant-minded people out there mm -hmm. that there are for animals. It's just a, there's a great animal bias in the biological world. Certainly. It's something I, I meet every day with my classes and things. Um, people much more prefer to take zoology than they do body. Sure. But I would imagine working with someone like you getting to get out into the field with your classes and, and really seeing the passion, but also having sort of the handhold experience through the, the, the amazingness, it, it's got to start turning lights on. And, and as someone in academia, do you see those lights turning on more frequently or is it kind of like every year it's about the same percent and we're just happy to get those? <laughs> you know, I, I hate to sound like an old you know, wise guy, but <laughs> I, I have noticed that it is getting more difficult mm. to get people excited about the natural world. And I, I, I really, it's, it's sad really. Um, now I'm not the greatest teacher in the world and um, I've, I've been doing it 20 years and I'm, I'm much better than I was. But sure. I feel like I can put some enthusiasm behind what we're seeing out there and, and the bug, the botany bug will bite the occasional student. And, yeah. Other people will kind of enjoy it, but you know they're never going to keep at it after after field botany or whatever. Sure, a lot of people just can't. They just want to get their degree, you know. Right. Know. Yeah, I think that's where you hope the whole, the if you're into the natural world, habitat has to factor into it, and you can't really talk about habitat without talking about plants. And so when you think about the 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 best converts in my mind are the ones that were like, I loved birds, but now I realize they need plants, so I'm a plant person. I'm doing restoration, right. or I'm doing ecology with a heavy focus on plants. So, right. yeah, you might still get them at some point in the future, but yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about these Facebook groups in the internet though. And do you think for a state like Alabama where, you know, you don't have a lot of professional botanists circulating or, you know, maybe they're not in the same areas. Has that really helped you as an herbarium curator, as a botanist for the state? Like 
is it connecting people that are finding things and making it a little bit easier to kind of make that stretch to say, okay, we got to go check this out or, Hey, this needs attention. Absolutely. And you know, there's, there's several plant groups out there that are uh, related to the Southeast or Alabama specifically. Um, we, uh, and some of my colleagues, we, we um, kind of curate one called the floor of Alabama plant identification. Um, and um, I guess in the second week of its existence, someone posted a wildflower that was a state record. I mean, it wow. wasn't due to science or anything, but it right. was to Alabama. And just the other day we found the Alabama milk vine. Somebody posted a photograph of that asking for help with the ID. That's one of Alabama's rarest plants. And, hmm. uh, so we um, we take turns in going to meet whoever posted it when possible and, and documenting it um, in, in the way it should be documented. But yeah, I think that um, for decades uh, we had these um, elections that were in some quiet room in the university and other places called Herbaria, <laughs> and almost nobody knew about them or had access to them except the botanist. And so now the botanist or social media has facilitated this interaction with people who maybe just have a passing or maybe more than passing interest in plants and they can post photographs uh, because we have this great technology called a smartphone and that gets on social media and people can talk about it, look about it, think about it. And, and then discover much more discoveries are being made because of social media and the interaction there. Right. And I, I love these digitized herbariums. You know, I mean, there's there's different levels of completeness everywhere and not every university or state has opted into to creating one yet. But you all took the step in doing it. And what's really nice is, you know, OK, having a specimen in hand is great. But if you don't have it, you have really high resolution scans. You can download them. You can compare and contrast a lot of different traits, maybe not the smallest of small, but extremely valuable. And so has that been kind of an uphill battle to get that off the ground? That seems like a lot of an early investment for a lot of payoff, but maybe down the road. Right. Well, you know, um, I, I studied under Bob Haynes, who was a, a pioneer in herbarium digitization. And so he kind of put the put the bug in me about it. But um, I guess we had a decade long project trying to come up with a checklist for the whole floor of the state. Mm. Now it's never like we, we eventually said, okay, this is it. This is what we're publishing. <laughs> but the, the checklist is never complete. Really. Right. We realized we made a mistake here. And that was mis ID there. And then there's constant new stuff coming in mm -hmm. new to science, new to the state or whatever. So, and, and then coupled with Alabama doesn't have a mega herbarium. We don't really have a flagship. We've got a bunch of little herbaria. You go to North Carolina, I mean, they got monster herbaria, like 600,000 is nothing. And so the largest herbarium in Alabama is 80,000 specimens, like Auburn and JSU. And then, and then we and uh, Troy and, and the University of Alabama are just behind them. Mm. So collectively, we thought, well, we can put this, instead of publishing a new checklist every so many years, why don't we do it digitally online? And so we'll keep that up to date. And then we'll tie it all to our specimens and we'll put all of our specimens into this one virtual pot. And so now we have um, over 239 specimens wow. um, all in the same pile. So if you go to look at Quercus Alba, you can see the holdings at the University of Alabama, Auburn University, University of West Alabama, wherever there's a herbaria that's participating, um, they're all in this uh, Alabama plant atlas. So it's a very powerful tool. 
it's really helped us to get on the same page, so to speak. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. I like that sort of pooling the resources, right? Cause there's not much of it to go around oftentimes. And if you're not a powerhouse, then a lot of people are just looking it over, but this opens the door to a lot of different uh, useful avenues for a variety of people in a bunch of different positions. But I'm curious from more of a botanist perspective, right? And, and this is a tough one because there's no real right answer. You know, there's lumpers, splitters. Taxonomy is changing faster than ever. You're on Facebook. You see how frustrated people get with it. And in a way, I can kind of understand. But at the same time, it's a science. It should always be updating and changing. And so when it comes to putting together a flora or a checklist and working with the herbaria, like, where do you draw the line in the sand when you go, okay, enough work has been done to say this is now benthamidia versus cornus? That's just the example I can think of off the top yeah, of my right, head. Right. But like, when do you as a botanist adopt the new nomenclature or when do you step in and go, eh, I'm not convinced? Or is it just really that it comes well, down to preference? I, I think if, um, if we close our minds to new discoveries and as we, we're getting, like in the old days, people sequenced data, well, even before that, um, people would say, you know, it was just opinion stuff. So <laughs> right. let's split this genus into two or three or four. And, uh, and then people would agree or disagree. And there was just, it was just matters of opinion. Right? right. So then this wonderful discovery with DNA was made and we can actually extract the DNA of the plants and have these little fancy computer programs that generate these trees and stuff. And so now we have like, a lot more science behind these decisions, mm. but even still, we, um, you know, some people think that you can lump several clades into a genus, and some people think that, depending on the group, that you can separate the uh, clades into different genera, like in the case you mentioned with dogwoods, and also magnolia, and we could go on and on and on. <laughs> um, so I think we have to come up with a better way of deciding, but I don't want to ever be close to say ah. That's enough of that because <laughs> people are making discoveries and we have to be in tune to these discoveries. And it, as science, you know, we, we just have to keep moving forward and assess these discoveries as they're made and, and figure out what to do with the taxonomy. But we're not just fiddling with these names right. just for the sake of it. I mean, it's, it's based in discovery. And as we learn more about these things and we have next gen sequencing now, and that's even helping more elucidate mm -hmm. relationships between taxa. Yeah. And, you know, the thing I always say, if you know it as Cornus, like what you say in your own time, that's fine. Like no one's stopping yeah. you. But like right. we kind of right. have to jump on, you know, what's the if it's for science, you, you kind of got to go with, like you said, the open mind and, and show me the data. Right. And if, you know, people have worked yeah. on this for many more months or years even than you have, sometimes you just got to go. All right. My hat's off to you. I don't like it, but we got to go with. It. <laughs> well, I you know, I, I love I love Robert Crawl. He was a mentor of mine. He was a long-term professor at Vanderbilt University. But I heard him say many times, I learned a disaster. It's going to be aster. <laughs> and I just don't want to adopt that mentality. Yeah. That's good, though. <laughs> I mean, this is what I love about this field is that it, if you want to be good at it, if you want to really dive in and be immersed in it, you really have to learn those kinds of, of, of mentalities, right? And that can apply across the board outside. Like, Bonnie can teach you so many lessons, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice. So again, curating an herbarium, you yourself are doing a lot of uh, botanical work outside of just the curation side of it. So what are some groups that are interesting you or like you see right now, these desperately need more work or there's a lot of, of hidden diversity there or just interesting things going on that just you need the time and, and <laughs> really the time to do? <laughs> well, um, turns out 
I have a list here. <laughs> nice. That I've been working on. Good scientist. And um, sometimes I think some of these are more, uh, need more. I think I have a list. <laughs> um, there's some things going on with Blue Stars, Amsonia, mm. uh, that we've been working on. Coreopsis, for instance. Um, I think that there's, I think there's undescribed biodiversity in the state of Alabama and beyond in Coreopsis. Um, the genus Eurybia in the Asteraceae. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, eutrochium. Uh, I've got some things going on in Eutrochium that just are not making sense with any published literature. Uh, these are the ones that we call Joe Pye weeds. Right, right. Um, uh, Pacara. I don't know if we'll ever make sense of Pacara. <laughs> Good luck. And, uh, and then and says Rinkium. The thing about it is somebody could come in and monograph Coreopsis, and they have. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that's the end of it. <laughs> right. You know, back to that Alabama geology stuff. You can find an outcrop somewhere, and uh, there can be a single-side endemic species right there that was never been collected before. Yeah. These kinds of things happen all the time. Right. And I would assume when you say weird things are happening that doesn't match with the literature, you know, that's looking at the details, right? Really getting into the thick of it and going, okay, this is, you know, off by X measurement or this is more florets than I've seen before. I mean, those are the kinds of details that even beyond the single site endemics, like cryptic species, right? That's a big thing, especially in botany is like we just lumped it all in because it was too hard or you didn't have enough sample size at the time uh, to really tease it out apart enough. Another issue in Alabama, uh, which you're, what you just said reminded me, is we don't have a modern flora. I mean, mm. we, I and some others are working on one. The, Charles Moore published one in 1901, and at the time it was considered top-notch for a state. So we don't have a modern flora, and mm. there's been for decades this over-reliance on the uh, Radford, Ollis, and Bell, 1968, the vascular flora of the Carolinas. Mm. And... Um, I think for many, many years, people would uh, collect plants and, and try to identify them in that book. And even though North Carolina has, and South Carolina have plants that we don't have, and we have plants they don't have, it's pretty effective for the sure. common stuff. But sometimes you'll get an answer, even though it's not the right answer. <laughs> and so the case of the uh, Talladega wild basil is a great example of that. That species was over there in the Talladega Mountains. Um, you know, just it's collected probably a dozen times. It wasn't exactly very rare. I mean, you go over there any time at all, you're going to encounter it. And so, um, but if you key that out in uh, Radford, Allison and Bell, you're going to get Clinopodium georgianum. Hmm. Well, I was over there doing that, just collecting in the Talladega Mountains, and uh, I was familiar with Clinopodium georgianum on the coastal plain of Alabama, down around Clark County and so forth. And so I realized, you know what? This is not Clinopodium georgianum. One of the two is not. And um, anyway, I, I wound up putting the examining the calices closely and realized right away that and they're totally different. Wow. And so I had the great pleasure of describing that one with uh, Aaron Floden of the Missouri Botanical Garden. Nice. And uh, so that was one that had been collected multiple times, but with this over-reliance of this book for the Carolinas, because we didn't have our own, um, we, uh, we just 
missed that one. Right. You know, just it didn't occur to anyone that it was new. So it was a bit of that cryptic diversity slash with bad literature. Hmm. Or yeah. the wrong literature, I should say. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine it is those blurry lines that often, you know, would be the ones that fall out and don't really key out properly or are where the errors lie, I guess, in our understanding of a flora like that. Because, yeah, the common stuff that's everywhere, it's ubiquitous. You got a good hand. Like you could, there's plenty of guides to the Southeast for that reason. But it's those unique things, right. those special things. And, you know, when we're talking about biodiversity, those are the ones that are more likely or more at risk to wink out. And, and that's where I think, this sort of explorative body of just going out, asking questions, looking hard enough to see if things are different. That's where the rubber meets the pavement and trying to understand if it's there. Cause if even if, you know, we can want to conserve habitat, but if we don't know it's there, even conserved habitat, these things can wink out. So that's right. Yeah. I will say we don't have to have that reliance on the Radford Allison bill that we used to. Thank sure. goodness. Alan weekly is trying to incorporate the whole Southeast, which includes Alabama. And that's been a, uh, a real game changer for people keying out plans. And, and he does a great job of networking and understanding about some of these complexes that we're on to, but we just haven't resolved yet and including that in his book. Right. Yeah. And it's free as a PDF. What more could you yeah. ask for? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> nice. So species descriptions. I mean, this is something that fascinates me because I've never gotten to do it. It's a really interesting thing because you're, you're putting something new in the scientific literature. You're describing something that has never been scientifically described before. But what does that process look like? Is there an average of how long it takes or is it just when you can get to it or it depends on the species? Like the, 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 the basil, for instance, like what does it take to describe a new species scientifically? What do you have to okay. do? Well, when you know, when you know, Without a doubt, it's new. <laughs> so how do you know it's new? Step well, one. <laughs> yeah. Well, first of all, new is kind of a loaded word. Sure. It's not new, right? It's not. It's been here. Yeah. It's been here for much longer than we have, more than likely. Um, so what, when we say new, we mean it's new to science. No right. one has ever said, hey, ta-da, this one has a name and this is it, right? <laughs> so, so when you say something is new to science, um, you... You have evidence to say that it's uh, it, it's different from all other relatives, and uh, there's a certain suite of rules you have to follow. But in any case, sometimes these things take years. I have an inkling that something's new. Um, mm. You don't want to rush to publish. Yeah, you want to grow it at your home or grow it in your university gardens. Mm see it more often, you want to collect it, search for it, understand the habitat. And um, sometimes these things take years to figure out. And sometimes like the hexastylus, you get a cell phone photograph <laughs> and you, you know instantly. You Bingo. Know. <laughs> so, um, but once you have the goods of it, once you have the, the evidence or whatever it is you gather, molecular data, uh, morphological data, once you have that information, you have to write a really good description mm. of what it is. Cause you've got to think about future researchers and then trying to also look at this future researchers, like today's research researchers and those that are, that'll come long after we're gone. Mm. So um, you want to provide a really good description. It's not required, but it's good to provide a key of its closest relatives. Mm. You have to provide a, a Latinized name. Um, most of the time, the genus is already established for you. Sure. You know, when you find a new species of hexastylus, you you have to use hexastylus, right? <laughs> so, um, well, that's a whole other word, uh, story about serum versus hexastylus. We won't get into that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, um, 
you have to declare in in Latin. It's a SPNOV, which is a little phrase, new species. And um, then you have to uh, submit it for publication. Hmm. And um, once you submit it for publication, then uh, it's effectively published. In a, you can't just publish it in a newspaper or something <laughs> like that. It has to be a reputable source, a botanical book or botanical journal, something that is available to botanists and things. You know, yeah. You can't you can't do it in a seed catalog. Oh, it's, shucks. It's got to be it's got to be <laughs> legit. You know. Yeah. And so uh, after you publish that, then you know it's a it's at least out there. Now, whether it's accepted or not is another thing. <laughs> We've had people publish new species that no one's buying it and no one accepts it and no one uses it. You know, it just gets kind of swept under the rug and synonymy, as we call it. It's a a, na- a new name for something we already knew existed. <laughs> right. And um, but in any case, um, that's what it comes down to. I mean, perhaps that's an oversimplification of a, of the process, but um, you. I think most botanists take it like me very seriously. Yeah. No one wants the embarrassment of doing something wrong. <laughs> right, right. Right. So you have to be very careful. Yeah. You have to choose a name that's going to work with the Latin. You have to uh, make sure it means something, you know, uh, you don't want to publish a name that's already exists. Yeah. And some of these uh, big species groups that are worldwide, like for instance, Carex, um, you don't want to publish a, a new Carex without looking at all the names of Carex that exist, the ones that are currently in use and the ones that are in synonymy. Because Oof. if you use one of those, what you've done is a later homonym, and uh, a later homonym is rejected right out of the gate. There's a lot of ins and outs with it, and uh, but it's uh, for me, it's the greatest joy of of finding something new and getting to to do that. That's kind of why I wanted to go into botany after my ginseng flirtation. Nice. That's a really cool look behind the scenes. And I realize it is so much more involvement than what you just outlined. And it has to be simplified. We only have you know, 45 minutes to talk here. But, you know, it, it's so cool to see behind the scenes of that because I think a lot of people just imagine you, you know, Eureka, it's new and therefore it is. And I'll write up a quick description and it's in there. But yeah, I love this idea of like understanding the natural history, seeing it in different versions. Like maybe what you saw in the wild isn't necessarily how it manifests in every scenario. Like, it's just cool. And then the, the breadth of knowledge and, and the resource digging you have to do to, like you said, find the names, make sure they're not used. That's it's so cool to see that. So thank you so much for oversimplifying it. But, you know, putting uh, us in the kind of shoes of someone and just to hear like the passion of it, too, is it's it's so it's charming. I love it. <laughs> well, my, my first new species was with was with Robert Crawl and nice. um, it was a golden rock. And uh, somebody asked many times, well, how did you know it was new? And you say, well, um, it, we, we know all the known golden rods and it's not one of those. <laughs> so, so you know, it's safe to say we can move forward. Yeah. Uh, yeah we're done here. <laughs> Let's grab some chips. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. It's just familiarity. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm guessing too, like some of these groups that maybe you're tangentially familiar with, I know you mentioned Cisrinchium to me, that's a, a beast of a genus. Like it, it probably does take a lot more effort, even if you have all the other pieces in place just to get familiar enough to go, okay, this is different versus I just haven't seen enough to know. Right. Exactly. Um, I, sometimes I'm not familiar enough with a group, um, all the species in the genus, but 
just my experiences in the field and other botanists can tell you the same. Yeah. They know when something's out of place. Right. And um, so you see that thing, well, man, I better make a specimen of that. And sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes it could be really something. Yeah. But it's, it's prompts to go outside, look around, ask questions, investigate, because this, you know, a lot of stuff happens post hoc, right? You collected it, it's out of the herbarium, but like someone had to go out and do that. Someone had to go out and say, okay, this is worth grabbing a voucher and pressing it and going through the process of labeling it. So it's just, it screams, go outside, explore your world, look around you. You never know what you're going to find. That's right. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Keener, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but if people want to learn more about your work or the work going on in Alabama to understand this amazing flora, where do you recommend they go looking? Well, they can certainly get involved and utilize the Alabama plant Atlas. Um, I have a faculty page here at UWA, but there's many, many collections they can look at and start to learn more about the Alabama flora. Um, and um, all of my material that I collect in state winds up at the Alabama Plant Atlas, along with several other botanists working in the state, along with material going back to the 1800s. Dang. So, but um, I, I have a faculty page that has my publications and things. If people are interested, I don't want to bore them to death with, with that. But <laughs> you're talking to the perfect audience. What are you? What are you saying? Right. <laughs> <laughs> But um, also, um, I just want to give a, a major plug to the uh, UWA Cahaba Biodiversity Center. It's a new venture that we're uh, UWA is undertaking, and uh, it was made possible by a gift of uh, by a man named Mr. Bill Hubbard. And Mr. Bill Hubbard left uh, 2,143 acres wow. uh, for conservation with four miles of frontage on the Cahaba River. And we are just on the ground floor of this thing, and we'll be moving forward with nature education for all ages um biodiversity right there in the name of it the cahaba biodiversity center and um the plans moving forward are going to be we're getting our infrastructure in place and i think it's going to be a wonderful place for decades years maybe centuries to come long after we're gone people are going to be impacted by the cahaba biodiversity center that's wonderful and what a beautiful stretch of river to to be on it's just Perfect. <laughs> That's right. Excellent. Well, Dr. Keener, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you for your passion and, and sharing a, a window into your life. This is really cool, and uh, we really appreciate it. Well, thank you for all you do. I'm a big fan of the Indefense Plants. I've been reading uh, your posts on Facebook from way back. Oh, thank you. And, uh, and then the, the podcast. But uh, I appreciate the invitation to be here with you today. Of course. Well, keep us posted. We'll have to have you back on. All right. Thank all right. you. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. How cool is that? I really appreciate Dr. Keener for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about that and really give us a look behind the scenes of what it means to be a botanist in such a biodiverse state. As always, check out the links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast, because that's where I put everything related to the conversations that we're having. And I urge you to explore the Flora of Alabama's website. It's a monumental effort in trying to consolidate a lot of different collections, but just the breadth of plants that you can find. And, and some of the specimens are absolutely gorgeous. Please spend some time exploring it. Once again, all of those links can be found at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. While you're over there, please check out different ways to support the show. There's a lot of great ways to do that. You can pick up a copy of my book some of our customizable merch and stickers. You can also become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. There's a lot of great kickbacks for chipping in a little bit of financial support each month. And a big thank you goes out to all of my patrons. The show wouldn't be possible without them. 
But that is entirely enough out of me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.